Greetings, and thank you for joining us on an ep- another episode of Deep in History. This is Marcus Grodi, your co-host for this program. I'm joined by Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Good morning, uh, Monsignor. Good morning. Good to be with you. I'm now in your time zone. That's, that's right. You're, I'm in Ohio, and you're in that state up north, as they say here in Ohio. Uh, that's right. But it, it's, it, it's really great to to have us be able to connect it. Oh, on the study of St. Irenaeus' Against Heresies. I was just joking with someone this morning that I'm not real convinced that we'll get through this book before the second coming of Christ, but we're going to keep chugging away at it uh, little by little. But I I do believe that now that we're into the meat of chapter 3, it's very much worth the close examination because particularly this section, uh, not only had a, a huge impact on you, Monsignor, in your journey yes. into the Catholic Church, but it's had a, a big impact on many, many, many people. Oh. And I think it did on St. John Henry Newman mm-hmm. in his journey, which is interesting because the, the translation we're using is by Keeble, who was a personal friend of Newman, of, of and, Newman's, yeah. and Pusey who is even referred to in some of the notes, who was a part of that Oxford movement, and Pusey did not come to the church. And so there was that constant battle between friends who would take a passage like this and come up with a different conclusion. And so to me, that's why I might pay play a little bit of devil's advocate in some of my thoughts today when you and I talk, Monsignor, about this very significant part of the book, and we've entitled this episode, Rome, the Church with Which All Churches Must Agree. Now, let me ask you, Monsignor, would that title, would you say that's a, a worthy title of what we're encountering in this chapter? Yes, I, I think it's a very good title um, because... It goes to the heart of what I think um, Irenaeus's argument here is in, in Book 3, Chapter 3, um, with the significant qualification that he's not talking about, um, you know, the, the word that we use is um, universal ordinary jurisdiction. Basically, the, the Pope is the, 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 the primary Christian in the world. I, um, uh, he would not see that papal authority in that sense at all. Yeah, there. Again, as as we've mentioned many times, um, uh, that so much happened in the church after Irenaeus that we have to remember he was likely oblivious to. Um. And in fact, warned against 
what often would come, where people would be at each other's throats because they could, couldn't agree on the meaning of a word. I mean, that became a huge problem in the, uh, in the third and fourth and fifth centuries onward as, as bishops were at each other and excommunicating one another over this issue. And often when we look at what Irenaeus says, there's two things in this at least that became foggy. One, they didn't listen to Irenaeus's warning about don't get at each other with just, just, just take what you've received and that's mm-hmm. sufficient. And then the second thing is this idea of agreeing with the Bishop of Rome became a foggy matter in the third, fourth century as we saw the divisions between East and West already starting because of some of the battles of theology and doctrine and and dogma. So anyway, um, another thing, well, Monsignor, I really want in this episode to lean so much more on on your very personal uh, relationship with this text. So I told everybody last week in the thing that we're going to post your article. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it will be posted for people to read as a background to this. But why don't, we, why don't I read the first paragraph and then I'll – maybe that's what I'll be. I'll be one of the main readers and then pass it on to you because – Okay, that would be great. This uh, chapter three um, begins this way. The tradition, therefore, of the apostles made manifest in all the world, all may look back upon, who wish to see things truly. And we are able to recount those whom the apostles appointed to be bishops in the churches and their successors, quite down to our time, who neither taught nor knew any such thing as they fondly desire. So it's devise, 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 excuse me, as they fondly devise. So let's talk about that statement here, because we got to be careful when we pull something out of context. Who is the they in this paragraph? I think that's, that helps Maybe a listener happens to turn on to us for the first time right now. Uh, uh-huh. Who, who's the, the apostles who neither taught nor knew any such thing as they fondly devise. And I uh, think it's fair to say that they refer to the Gnostics that um, St. Irenaeus, is, his whole book is directed against them. So um, remember how we talked about this last time. The Gnostics um, believe they they certainly believed that there was a tradition, a written tradition handed down by the apostles, but they saw a higher tradition that was secret and oral, um, that that only was given to the, the inner circle, which obviously did not include all the apostles the way. <laughs> <laughs> so it, uh, um, um, so yeah. And I, what I, I've always taken from this particular um, section that one of the principles of Saint Irenaeus' teaching about tradition is that it is public. 
um, uh, there is not a secret knowledge that's um, you know saved for just the in, interior few. Um, but it is laid out in the scriptures for all. Um, and of course, the apostles and their successor, the successors of the apostles are the ones that are the, the, the primary interpreters of that tradition. But it is a public tradition. Yeah. And uh, you and I come in our spiritual journeys from different directions. And... To a certain extent, I believe all of us, every person, has within them a hermeneutic that forms a lens through yeah. which they interpret life. And to a certain extent, we're aware of that hermeneutic, and to a certain extent, we might be blind to that way. And you and I come at all of this differently as, you know, we in the Coming Home Network deal with clergy and laity from other traditions coming towards the Catholic Church, and they're coming from lots of different directions, and they all come with different hermeneutic or way of looking at things, a lens through which, and you came at it more from an Anglican mm -hmm. position that had no problem with Scripture and tradition, because you saw, you recognized the value of tradition the Anglican official word is through the first seven councils, right? You would accept right, it yeah. all that. Yeah. So um, that was not an issue for you. I come at it from more of a Lutheran and then a Calvinist, even a Congregationalist perspective. That's my background training. So for me, my leaning was Scripture alone, not tradition at all though we had tradition. There was Lutheran tradition and Calvinist, because we had a hermeneutic, a Lutheran hermeneutic, Calvinist hermeneutic, which is a sovereignty of God, Lutheran hermeneutic, which is faith alone. And But anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up is what jumps at, out at me in this in a way that maybe didn't as jump out as important to you because of your background. But for me, is the emphasis to remember when we read this, whatever... Irenaeus uses the word tradition or apostolic tradition, the tradition from the apostles in the church. He means written and oral. He's never separating yeah. those two. Right. And that is absolutely essential to understand the early church, that this idea that there's a tradition and a written, which we Protestants separated and only held on to the written and, and put, lacked our trust in that. With you Anglicans, that wasn't a big an issue. For him, it didn't cross his mind. He recognized there was a written as well as an oral, but both of them were together. And again, for those of you who wonder about that, go back to chapter, book three, chapter one, verse one, uh, section one, um, and there it says... We won't quote it now because of time, but there it clearly says that it's our Lord giving the deposit to the apostles who preached it, and that preaching became the scriptures. And he says that that is the ground and pillar of our faith. And so my point is, when he says the tradition, therefore, of the apostles made manifest in all the world, it's this the deposit of truth 
that the successors of the apostles, guided by the Holy Spirit, received and preserve and has passed on. So it isn't, as you said, a private thing. It was public for all to know and all to hear. And, um, you know, Marcus, I was, in in our lifetime, one of the most uh, encouraging developments in biblical studies um, has been has been really led by evangelicals um, that have recognized the problem of a private or a personal hermeneutic that gets in the way. Yeah. And so we have these wonderful works um, of like the ancient Christian commentary on scripture yeah. or the Brazos New Testament commentaries. I mean, those are a couple. And in Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor publishes a series as well. Um, Ave Maria Press, I think it is. But the point being that uh, it's evangelicals that have um, really helped to give voice to these early um, church fathers and how they interpreted these texts uh, um, to make the point that that we build on an interpreted interpretive tradition. We don't invent it ourselves. And we... We need to, you know, be careful when we read in, in, whenever we listen to any of the stuff we'll see in this this section by Irenaeus, we've got to be careful that we're not reading into it what developed in the 4th and 5th and 6th and 7th centuries in terms of bishops and power and position and all of that stuff, that the battles between Constantinople and Rome and who, that's totally out of the picture here. What Irenaeus is emphasizing in my mind is that the succession in all the churches is about the preservation of the truth that was passed on from Christ to his apostles. Because there are all these other voices out there that are saying they got some hidden secret thing. No, no. You can know what's true by listening to a bishop who was a successor of an apostle. And that's really the background here, because he goes on to say, Yet surely if the apostles had known any hidden mysteries which they used to teach the perfect apart and unknown to the rest, they would deliver it to those even more than others to whom they were entrusting the churches themselves. So in other words, if they'd gotten this, they would have passed it on. I think that's a brilliant argument he makes there. Um, I don't know how the Gnostics could counter an argument like that. Yeah, yeah. For very perfect and blameless in all things would they have them to be whom they were leaving to be their actual successors, committing to them their own place of presidency, whose correct dealing would be a great advantage, their fellows again, an extreme calamity. Their, excuse, their failure again, an extreme calamity. So, you know, if a man is a bishop and he's passing it on to, he's passing baton on to another man who's going to be in charge of these people, the question is, are you promising to hold to and to pass on that which we've received from the apostle? That's the issue. Are you promising that? Marcus, a question for you and you're in the background you came from. Um, you know, um, where, where Irenaeus says um, the apostles commit to their successors, their own place of presidency. Did, did a text like this have any 
bearing on how the Lutheran Church has come to um, reincorporate bishops into into their, um, uh, oh, you know, policy. you know. I'll be honest with you, that's a question that I can't answer because yeah. my Lutheran background was as a young man. I was baptized and catechized, confirmed Lutheran, um, and was a Lutheran until college. And then I had my born-again experience actually as a mm -hmm. Congregationalist, and at that time rejected liturgy and rejected anything. So this to me was, you know, the Congregationalists are basically no creed yeah. but Jesus. Right. And every individual church is totally free to follow the Holy Spirit. And uh, I mean, that's the pilgrims, you know, the, the Plymouth covenant, you know, the, those early covenants. That's what it was. We, we covenant to be one to another. So this idea now, in the truth, so what they held to, if they were passing on a church to a pastor like Jonathan Edwards later, let's say, in the, uh, when was that, 17th century, no, 18th century, early 18th century, if Jonathan Edwards was passing on Stockbridge or wherever he was at, I forget where he was at, you know, they would grill this guy to make sure they were holding to the Puritan understanding. Yeah. So they had a deposit of faith that they were holding to, that they believe it was creedal. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of passing on becomes the norm, I believe, for all Christian traditions. Just the question is, well, what's, what is it you're being committed to? Where'd that come from? If you're a five-point Calvinist, and so that's your deposit of faith that you're committed to passing on to make sure in your little church the next minister is going to hold to the five points of Calvinism. The question is, where'd that come from? Mm. And in fact, uh, when St. Francis de Sales uh, became the Bishop of Geneva, and he was going to challenge the... the um, uh, uh, the Calvinists in his area, the first, very first letter he wrote to challenge them was, who ordained your guys? Yeah. Who laid their hands up? So in other words, the apostolic succession. Where, where'd they get their foundation of truth? This is the issue. Yeah. Does it go all the way back? To a church established by an apostle, can you trace it back? Or does it start up somewhere new? Yeah. I don't want to nail any modern Protestant churches, but I think of the Vineyard Fellowship that started with George Wim with, with Wimber. Yeah. Well, where did it start? John, well, yeah. John Wimber. Well, well, okay. <laughs> but, you know, it's just... Um, can, they're committing to them their own place, their own, the apostles' own place of presidency. So, so there's a, it, that has to be something that's public too, this, this succession um, that goes on. And um, anyway, it's the, it's the successors of the apostles that then choose their successors. And, yep. and this comes um, from Paul's, yeah. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Um, 
I used to have that well memorized, but as I get closer to 70, I, I, I've noticed that they don't quite come like they used to. But I 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. So this is Paul who received the apostolic truth from Jesus directly and then was confirmed through the shaking of hands with the Cephas and the other elders in Jerusalem. So Paul's been confirmed that he's received the apostolic deposit from our Lord and the apostles, the other apostles. So you have Paul passing it on to Timothy. And then Paul says to Timothy, and what you have heard from me before many witnesses, now in other words, not secret. That's right. What you heard from me before many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Jesus and the apostles, to Paul, to Timothy, to the next group, to the next group, in the context of many witnesses, it's not secret or hidden. Marcus, another thing that, since we're, I like to kind of connect a little bit with modern times, um, there are parts, you know, of the Catholic Church that are arguing that the people in a local diocese should choose their own bishop, get to choose their own bishop. I think we've had arguments like that from the German, uh, from Germany, for instance. And um, it just reminds me of, in my tradition, you know, that whole debate about who gets to choose the bishops. Um, does the sovereign, the king of England do it, or does the pope do it? And I, it seems to me this is a really critical Catholic principle to be upheld, too, that... Um, for for the succession to be apostolic, it requires um, an apostolic yeah. person to hand it on. So the importance of of the Bishop of Rome confirming every episcopal appointment, he basically makes every episcopal appointment. Um, I think that if you were looking for the principle for that, you can find it right there in this part of Irenaeus. Exactly. Before we move on, though, uh, what's the phrase, you know, for want of accuracy or whatever, we do have to admit, I've found that when you become deep in history, yeah, I agree with Newman, you, you can't stay a Protestant. But you also start discovering an awful lot of flaws in the history of the Catholic Church. And one of them was, was this very issue you're talking about. We do have to be careful there because there's there are huge periods of the church where people did choose their bishops. There are huge periods of the church where local bishops voted on a, you know, when the Pope wasn't even involved. There were local periods when the kings of Germany and France, that was a big issue when they were choosing their bishops and who's, who has the right. I mean, we know that that was in the 4th, 5th, and 6th and onward centuries. That became an issue. So, and the point is that the church had to struggle with what's going to be the norm. And, and eventually they recognized all the way back to here, no, this is the norm that we'd gotten away from. And, you know, and the idea that the Chinese Communist Party can nominate candidates. <laughs> yeah. 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 
Yeah, for those that are outside the church and they wonder what's the big deal, well, this is a big deal from a Catholic perspective. That's how do you know if that bishop appointed by the communist leader is teaching the tradition from the apostles in the church? Exactly. That's the issue. That's the issue. Not just this written Bible, that's a part of it, but it is how do we interpret this and apply it in the bigger context of tradition. How do we know for certain if that bishop appointed by whomever? And that's been a problem off and on. So we're going to move into section two, Monsignor, which to me is probably, the you know, this opens up this big, big, important section. And I think this is what had such a big impact on you because Irenaeus writes, but because it were very long in such a work as this to reckon up the successions in all the churches. There is one very great and most ancient and known to all, the church founded and established at Rome by two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, whose tradition which it hath from the apostles and her faith proclaimed unto men by succession of bishops coming down even unto us, we point to, thereby confounding all those who in any way form undue assemblies on account either of self-pleasing ways or of vain glory or of blindness and wrong opinion. So I'm going to stop there, Monsignor, because the next sentence is the is the really biggie, but I'm going to just That's pause. That's the biggie, yeah. I'm going to pause okay. there because... So it sounds to me what he's saying is that there are, are a lot of churches by the year 175 AD when he's writing this around the spread of Christianity into the whole area around the Mediterranean. It's really expanded, but there are a number of churches that were founded by the apostles um, and that... Irenaeus and others could trace the successors in all those churches all the way back to the apostles. So they could say that church in Ephesus or the church in Antioch or the church at Alexandria, for example, and the church of Rome are four examples of churches that were planted by apostles, uh, were planted by apostles, Alexandria by Mark and Ephesus uh-huh. by Paul and John, and then Antioch by Peter, uh, who was down that area, and then, of course, Rome, Peter, and Paul. So we have these churches where he could enumerate all the bishops, but because parchment was expensive, he didn't want to <laughs> tell them all. So he says, I'll pick, of all those, which one am I going to pick? Well, I'm going to pick the one, the most ancient, known to all, and that is Rome. Uh, founded by Peter and Paul, whose tradition which it has from the apostles and her faith proclaimed unto men by the succession of bishops coming down from them to us. And then he says, thereby confounding all of those who in any way form undue assemblies on account either of, number one, self-pleasing ways. Or two, of vainglory. Or three, of blindness and wrong opinion. Whoa. <laughs> I was just thinking, I was just, all these 
figures flash through my memory. <laughs> Modern church plants. <laughs> oh, boy, I took a course in that in seminary. My seminary, church planting. My goal oh when my I was God. a young seminarian getting ready to be ordained, I just assumed in my life what I was going to I was congregationalist at the time. I'm going to go out and I'm going to be an assistant at maybe two churches, and then I'll start planting my own churches. I mean, that's what we right. did. Never crossed my mind. Anything wrong with that. Yeah. That's what you do. That's right. And and how do you fill those churches? Well, some primary evangelism, but a lot of it is attracting people from other other churches. And um, People have thought yeah. of me as an evangelist. If people ask you, what is my job? I say, well, I guess that's what I am. You know, I do it on TV and radio and the Coming Home Network and books. I'm an, I guess so. But truth be known, I don't know if in my life I've ever directed, directly converted anyone from nothing to Christianity. Maybe because of something I've said by God's grace. But in my direct work, I've helped people come back from nominal Christianity by God's grace yeah. to a deeper walk with Christ through my preaching. Praise God. I mean, I, it's neither me, I know it's But the point is that every church I ever pastored was at least 30 or 40% Catholic, former Catholics. Sure. And everybody else was former something else if they weren't lifelong congregationalists or Presbyterians. Oh, that was my experience as an Episcopalian, too. I mean, maybe. In, in the diocese that I was serving as a bishop, I bet there were, it was close to half of the people were former Catholic in that diocese. Um, yeah, all those, those mega churches out there that are now starting yeah. that have no direct connection to any traditional Christian denomination or association or the Catholic Church, whatever their title is, if you look asterisk on the bottom, they're all an association of what's called the churches that are happening now. <laughs> you know, and what was the motive behind the man or woman who started those churches? And he itemizes three possible ways, self-pleasing ways or vainglory or blindness and wrong opinion. He's being kind of nasty there. <laughs> now, Marcus, to so that we aren't just beating up on the um, <laughs> the Protestants, I think it's probably worth also mentioning in this section that we don't hear anything of the traditional argument of Petrine primacy here. You don't find in the early these early fathers um, the argument that. The Church of Rome is what it is based on that Matthean, the, in the commission right. to Peter. Um, here it is Peter and Paul. And Peter and Paul are especially highlighted here because this is where they poured their blood out in this church yeah. and for this church. So their martyrdom um, has has basically you know laid this holy foundation. Um, Why do we believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Because how do we, why do we believe that against those that say it was made up or you know the apostles came up with this idea and uh, stole the body 
which is what the Jews tried to spread the rumor at the time. Well, why do we believe? Why is the number one bottom line issue? He is risen. Because they gave their lives for it. They died for that. And this church was founded by two men who their whole adult lives were one persecution after another. Just read Paul's list. Um, and there's the foundation for this church. And you're right, Matthew 16 doesn't show up as an argument until about the 4th century. Yeah. That's, that's a later issue. And so it's not in Irenaeus. He's not making the, his argument is this church is because Peter and Paul is the foundation for it, right? Right. And they they didn't start on, you know, down there, those other verses. There aren't little churches starting up on their own because some guy thinks he's got a... That's what the Gnostics were doing. You know, That's they, right. They, that's exactly what they were doing. Yep. The, the, the comparisons are sometimes uncanny. And that's what we tried to do in this, everyone, is yeah. we're trying to bring this book to today and, and see how it applies. It's That's the problem. It really is. And I think people like Newman and... and and Keeble and Pusey during that time were trying to answer this very question. Which of the churches is fits the criteria of Irenaeus that's there today? And for the yeah. longest time, Newman, Keeble, and Pusey were saying, well, the Anglican church does. It's kind of this middle way between these other churches that want to start their own thing or the Catholic church that's, that's grown, overgrown into barnacles that we're getting back to the essence. That's what they were trying to do. And then Newman said, ended up, the direction you've gone. Um, you want to say anything more about that passage before we get into the, the meaty one? Well, I think maybe the other thing just to say about, um, about how Rome honored Peter and Paul is that we now know, too, that um, from this period of time that St. Irenaeus is writing, there is um, the, the Christians in Rome are venerating the, the tombs of these two apostles. So the basic, the early foundation of St. Paul's outside the wall and um, what will become St. Peter's Basilica, these are, are martyriums that um, we have, ev we have um, records of people writing about how, how this was uh, a deep part of the life of the Church of Rome, the people in Rome, is to venerate the apostles. It is until years later that skeptics start to wonder whether Peter was ever in Rome. Right? Right. You know, well, here we got Irenaeus. It's not, it's not even a question. None of the early writers even question the reality of both Peter and Paul being in Rome and dying in Rome. Yeah. It was a given. Why do we think we're so much smarter than these people that knew him? Knew someone that knew him. Irenaeus was one of those that knew someone that knew Peter and Paul. You remember on our on our pilgrimage uh, last year, we when we went to St. Paul's outside the wall, it was so moving to see the people going down the steps um, and to be able to pray and see actually the the sarcophagus where yeah. where Paul was buried in. Um, that's the impact that this sort of thing has. Yeah. So this church in Rome, which is, on the one hand, one of those, maybe one of the many that can trace its six bishops back to the apostles, but is uniquely significant with both Peter and Paul 
were the founders and died there, that by this time they're being venerated. Then he goes on to say, for with this church, on account of its higher original, the whole church, in brackets, I mean the faithful on all sides, end of brackets, must needs agree, wherein the tradition which of the apostles hath ever been preserved by them of all countries. Okay, so this is where we could really get into um, an interesting discussion. Um, I personally feel that this translation, um, people's translation here is minimalistic. Um, and why would he do that? <laughs> Cause he was a good Anglican and <laughs> you know, a good Anglican. I remember as a younger person thinking this, I was just taught this, that, um, the Catholic church is a confederation of independent churches. So you have the, the great churches of the East and you have the church of Rome and the Lutheran church and the Anglican church are Catholic churches. They're legitimately Catholic churches with a legitimate succession. Um, and Rome is important only for the reason that it is the principal patriarchal church of the West. So it was from Rome that Pope Gregory sent um, St. Augustine of Canterbury out to evangelize um, the British people. And, um, and so what, what I think- And, 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 one, and one could argue that what you just described yeah. is reflected in what he's saying here, at least the well, way Keeble translates what, yeah. it. Certainly what Keeble is reading it that way, because yeah. um, you pointed out earlier um, before we started that footnote, um, footnote B there, um, uh, with this church on account of its higher original, and, and then Keeble's note says, as being the only church founded by the apostles in the West. So there the argument I think Keeble is trying to make is that this church is important, be, I mean, we'd call it because it's a patriarchal church or it is the principal missionary church um, of the West and all the other churches of the West would find their origin in this church. Um, so it's, it's, it's more of a, of a, how should we put it, a quantitative kind of an expression, you know, that it's the, Rome is the earliest church so, in other words, a church in Spain got its origin through a missionary from this church. That's correct. Which traces its apostolic authenticity to through Peter and Paul to Jesus. So correct. all the churches in the West need to agree with this one because that's where their own successor traces his succession to. That's right. Or if you were, if you were in Macedonia or in, in uh, mainland Greece or in Egypt or in the, in um, Syria, you'd have your own 
point of reference, and it wouldn't be Rome. It would be the patriarchal church there. Um, That's interesting because I hadn't thought seriously. Um, because again, I come from a different hermeneutic, but at the bottom of page yeah. 208, which we'll get to, uh, I pointed this out to you before the program where he's there at the bottom, the church in Ephesus having had both Paul for its founder and John to abide among them until the times of Trajan. So I would have argued against the footnote uh, that Keeble puts there because they said, wait a second, it isn't just Rome in the West that has an apostolic succession. It's Ephesus. They got to... But you pointed out correctly to me, they would have not considered Ephesus a part of the West, right? Right, right. All those other churches, the Greek churches, everyone, were a different... A different geographical area. And um, the other other thing that in this footnote, as I was reading, this is a very complicated footnote that um, that Dr. Keeble provides here. And in the eight, in the nineteenth century, um, there was this argument developed. Um, he pr- primarily quoting from German scholars here, but that the reason why Rome is important is that it acts as a kind of magnifying lens. So, because Rome is the first city of the world, and you know the traffic is you know everybody is kind of relating to Rome for all sorts of reasons. So that other churches, um, in a way, their apostolic glory is reflected in in this church because everybody comes to visit and relate to it. So it has nothing to do with the internal um, quality of of, um, of apostolic succession in the Church of Rome. It's it's simply a lens that that. Um, helps reflect and concentrate the light of of the apostles. Now, as Catholics, we certainly don't wouldn't accept that yeah. argument, I don't <laughs> think. So <laughs> at well, least traditional Catholics. It, I'm uh, my mind is going a little blank here, so I apologize, but it reminded me of there's a famous bishop um in the early seventh century, who was, I think, in a city on the south shore of France, near France and Italy. It was a very important city. I don't think it was Arles. I think Arles is farther north. And I don't think it's Aquileia, but anyway, it might have been Aquileia. But, but my point is, that that bishop, oh, I wish I could, maybe the next episode I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. but that bishop, what he did, he recognized the need for better preaching. So he get, began putting together collections of sermons that he would pass on to bishops. And the reason was all the bishops coming from the north, anyone coming from the north would come through that city to get to Rome. So they're always passing through that city. Was it St. Caesarius of Arles? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And the reason most people don't realize how absolutely essential his work was to the spread of the faith in France and Germany and England and all that, because 
the, he would take from Augustine and many of these, take their sermons, and he put them in his sermons, and then they were passed on. And then the missionaries took those, and they became the foundation for much of what was preached for so long. In fact, Boniface, when he goes into Germany and he cuts down that tree, well, you can see the need to do that in the sermons of, of this bishop because the tree represents the pagan yeah. background. So you got to cut it out. Well, that came from this guy. Well, my point being, point. It, it gets to what you just referred to, that everything comes from the apostles to Rome, and then everything and all the faith in Europe came through Rome. And that's what he, that's the argument Keeble. In other words, he, that's the major church. And so that's why I almost agree with Rome, because that is the apostolic channel through yeah. which everything came in Europe. That's right. That, that would be how Keeble would read this. Right. But, but now we've got to deal with the actual text here. Okay. <laughs> did, did Dr. Keeble translate it correctly? Because those words, you know, on account of its higher original, um, the, we don't have the, Greek, the original Greek here. We, we don't have anything, everything that we have from this is in the Latin. So the Latin is and later, and um, and in other words, our, the fragments we have in the Latin for this don't date back really, really early. So yeah, I'm pretty no, sure they're I, later. I'm not sure about that, about the date on that. I'd have to do some working on yeah. that. But at, at any event, whenever this was translated into Latin, the words that were used was uh, were propter potentiorum principalitatem um, on account of its greater um, and he and he uh, he, say, he says higher original or greater original um, we would translate this um, well the, uh, one one of the more modern translations puts on account of its more excellent origin that the idea, though, is it's the arche. The Greek, probably the word is Greek. That he's, the Greek word he would use was arche. Um, and I think of this not as some, not as a missionary, not not as a in a chronological sense that you know this was the first missionary sending church in the West, but in a in the sense of arche as a, a source. The spring of apostolic life, if you will, comes from this source um, because of because of the presence of Peter and Paul there. So, um, if we were looking for the freshest apostolic water, we would want to tap into this source. Um, Is Irenaeus thinking of the West? I. Oh, Marcus, I confess that I don't know. I'm not sure. Because as you pointed out in, in page, on page 208, he, he doesn't need this argument when he talks about the church in Ephesus. Yeah. So, um, so it may be that it's um, especially focused on the, the church of the West. And again, I don't think 
um, the text will bear out um, a, a real strict argument for papal primacy, universal papal primacy here. Yeah. Um, I don't think we can get there from here with this text. So, And some have done that, and yeah. that's why... I told you I wasn't going to mention this, but I probably will just because it keeps sticking with me, and it's the butterfly effect of chaos theory. But, but my only my only point of that is in the butterfly effect, which is a secular chaos theory of science that says when a butterfly flaps its wings over here, it eventually leads to a hurricane somewhere around the world. You know, so you have this little thing that leads to a big thing, and of course, chaos theory is it just happens. It happens just randomly without any guidance of, of God, if that's the view. Whereas kind of applied a little bit in this, you see a little statement made by someone early in the church that develops later into something much bigger when we believe that if it's of God, that's what Newman wants to say in his development theory. We, how do we determine whether that little acorn developed into this oak or whether this development began with an authentic acorn? So, um, but what you're saying is that the idea of taking this and arguing from this Petrine authority. Yeah, I don't think you can do it. Yeah. I don't think you can do it. I, I think, as you said, it, that's a later development. I can, I think there's one, I've, I've looked at the text. <clears throat> I think there's one instance in the middle of the third century um, where in this in the controversy between Pope Stephen and Cyprian, um, and uh, there's a there's a letter that we have in Cyprian's correspondence from the from a bishop out east, saying that that uh, Pope Stephen is actually going around claiming that he is Peter, <laughs> and and so the Eastern bishops are complaining about um, about this, but. But right here, I don't, I don't think we see it. Um, and you pointed out in our talk before we started the podcast, the whole question about the date of Easter is a very important one here too, because St. Irenaeus was arguing there should be flexibility and yep. um, how Christians determine the date of Easter. It doesn't all have to come based on what, the Church of Rome says. I think the biggest original source for that debate on the Easter is in Eusebius's yeah. history, um, which covers the whole background of what we're talking about. There is a fragment in the back of this book that deals with that. But yeah, the question is, when when Irenaeus says, for with this church, on account of the higher authority, the whole church, I mean the faithful on all sides, must needs agree, what is he mean by that? And that's a, that's a discussion. In other words, does he mean, as we titled this section, Rome, the church with which every church must agree, worldwide, through all time, as uh, um, uh, or, you know, does are there different layers of that? And one way, which the Anglicans or Keeble at least would have said, it's because all the churches in the West, if they want to be sure they're teaching what's true, they need to see if their bishop or priest is passing on the authentic apostolic tradition. How do you know? Because that came 
All of our churches were planted by missionaries from Rome. And all of our bishops, at least at his time, would have been appointed um, by someone who had been appointed by someone who had been appointed by someone who had been appointed by an apostle. And it's not the laying out of hands. The idea of a, of a specific character or mark being passed on through ordination, the way we the church understands yeah. it today, was not an issue here. It was no mention oh. of it until I could not find any mention of it in any Christian document until Augustine mentions it. It never comes up. It doesn't come up in That's Cyprian right. or anything. But yeah. the laying out of hands is a way of, a, besides asking that the Holy Spirit grants gifts of ministry, as we see in Ephesians, the laying out of hands is an affirmation, a passing on, that this man has received the apostolic deposit of truth, and he will stand for that. So... And so Irenaeus says that it's necessary that all churches be in a accord with this particular church and what she teaches. Yeah. Um, so so the, the, his concern is not with the exercise of jurisdiction or anything like that, but it is with um, what is the authentic teaching tradition in the church? Where do you find it? And, and um, I think we're... Dr. Keeble's argument kind of, or his way of looking at this falls apart, is that that these churches of the Reformation don't, they have not preserved the whole of the teaching. Yeah. Um, yeah. They've, they've, they've done a serious pruning job in the vineyard. It cracks me and, up when I look at my background, evangelical background, Congregationalist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, that there are an awful lot of people when they got disgruntled with the leadership of any of these churches, often they would break away and start a new church. And we're going back to Acts chapter two. We're going back to Acts chapter two so that we get the offense. We're cutting through all this junk and we're cutting exactly yeah. we're going back to yeah. Acts chapter two. Yeah. And it's like, wait a second, that isn't going back to the apostolic tradition that we're talking about here. That's right. That's not the That's fullness of, of the tradition that was passed on. I love the way you put it. Yeah. I think that was right on target there. Yeah. Well, guess what, Monsignor? Uh, we're going to pause there, and we'll pick up in Section 3 next week. All right? Okay. Because we've been waxing eloquently on this thing for about four days this afternoon. So <laughs> we'll, um, we'll pause there. And we particularly, uh, we'll come back next week and we'll deal with the details of the successions in Rome. That's in section three of chapter three. Um, but Monsignor, would you close us today with the uh, Of course, yeah. Blessing? Okay, right. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Most blessed Lord, we thank you for the witness of St. Irenaeus. And as we... Um, uh, sometimes struggle to come to terms with what he was teaching and the implications in our life. We pray um, that we will move forward illuminated by your spirit and guided with the love of our brethren. And we ask this in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. 
Thank you, Monsignor, for joining us so today much. in this. Yeah. And all of you for joining us, thank you. I hope you have any questions or comments. We'd love to hear from you. We'd particularly love to know if you're enjoying this podcast. Uh, uh, but Monsignor and I are enjoying it. We hope that you are. So God bless you. We'll look forward to seeing you again and, next week. And, and hopefully, Marcus, we won't, um, the Lord won't delay the second coming just to accommodate us. <laughs> well, we know from the teaching of the church that in the years leading up to the second coming, it, it gets worse before it gets better. That's right. And we're yeah. living through that time. So Lord, help us, especially help, help us grow in the fullness of the gospel, which is holiness and humility and simplicity and love and charity. That's the goal of what we're trying to do here as we study Irenaeus. So, all right. See you all next week. God bless you. Thank you.